0: Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by State Historian Emeritus Walt Woodward and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. And I'm Mary Donahue for Connecticut Explored. Connecticut Explored Magazine is celebrating its 20th anniversary and our Grading the Nutmeg podcast its 7th anniversary. Neither of these milestones could have been reached without your support. Please make a gift to our new Fund for Excellence in Publishing on Giving Tuesday, November 29th at ctexplored.org. In this episode of Grading the Nutmeg, Natalie Belanger of the Connecticut Historical Society is taking a look at a digital history project that will help expand our understanding of mental health care in Connecticut's past. Tucked away on Silvermine Road in
1: Middletown is the Connecticut Valley Hospital Cemetery. Between 1868 and 1967, just under 1,700 individuals were buried there in graves marked only with a number. Since the 1990s, efforts to restore their identities have resulted in the addition of a plaque matching names to numbers, as well as annual memorial ceremonies. Both historians and descendants of former patients have devoted time to this cause. Today, I talk to Caitlin Oberndorfer about a graduate school project she created, a database of information about the patients buried at the hospital. Our conversation covers the types of sources she used to restore the histories of the cemetery residents, what these stories can teach us about the lives of people living with mental illness in the past, and how she hopes both families and historians can utilize her database in the future. So, um, Caitlin, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got involved in this project?
2: Uh, My name is Caitlin Oberndorfer. Uh, Right now, I'm a Central Connecticut State University grad student out of a public history program. Um, But in terms of my professional life, I'm also a history teacher at Crack Greater Hartford Academy of the Arts High School. So this project is a kind of culmination of both of those worlds, a little more heavier on the public and history end of things. Uh, Early on in my grad program, we're talking early 2020, so going into the pandemic taking this uh, really wonderful class uh, called The Professional Historian, where I started on a topic that had nothing to do with this topic that we're talking about right now whatsoever, but it morphed into that. I started out by trying to come up with a subject that has something to do with Northern memory of the Civil War and how Civil War soldiers themselves contributed to that. And by and by, I kept coming across references to kind of hardships that soldiers faced in the North after the war, specifically going into places like the fitches Soldiers Home or even being transferred to the Connecticut, what today, is the Connecticut Valley Hospital for the Insane, or excuse me, Connecticut Valley Hospital, Connecticut's Hospital for the Insane is what it was called in the period. I happened to stumble across this really weird story in my research about one soldier who after the war was noted in the heart for current as having a wife who was at the Connecticut State Hospital for the Insane, but he himself had just disappeared in this sort of caper, left his family behind. I found it such a strange story in my research. And again, I was ambling in the process. I looked into his story a little bit more and I found that he actually had been sent to the uh, Connecticut State Hospital for the Insane itself, which sparked again this whole funnel of research on. What exactly was the Connecticut State Hospital for the Insane like after the Civil War? I mean, it started in 1868 in that kind of wake of the conflict. It was a huge part of the development of how the North treated soldiers and how the North thought of mental health care again in the late 19th century. This eventually developed into kind of a uh, a back and forth between me and Professor uh, Matt Warshaw. And I found that, hey, he had a huge stake in research and connections between the Civil War, individual soldiers' experience in the hospital in its own right. But I found that I could really use the state hospital, at least as an avenue to, to bolster my individual research in that public history class, that professional historian class, but eventually I became far more interested in this physical cemetery on site, the Connecticut Valley Hospital Cemetery in the, just off of the east of the main campus, tucked away on this little side street called Silver Mine Road. That's 1,681 patient burials on that site, all numbered, not named, not listed with any identifying information. But I learned that a number of Civil War patients had been buried there and eventually transferred out their final resting places were elsewhere. Again, it was a part of this huge rambling kind of domino effect of my research where I discovered this cemetery could be a cornerstone to learning more about, again, either individual Civil War, experience, or Civil War soldier experience After the conflict in mental health or thinking about it much, much broader in terms of this experience of those in Connecticut suffering from mental health afflictions in the wake of the Civil War, all the way up to just about 1960.
1: So in doing this project, what were the primary sources that you were working with?
2: So when I first discovered the Connecticut Valley um, Hospital Cemetery, I realized that there was a huge memorial triptych at the front of it that listed off every single patient's name, their death year or death age, and just their, their corresponding headstone that had a number on it as far as when they were buried or roughly when they were buried. So from there, I was able to kind of use their names as a way to access Really kind of common genealogical history sources or local history sources looking into ancestry to access census records, both special censuses and regular censuses, Uh, but additionally things along the lines of uh, city directory information, probate records on a very, very rare occasion. Again, things that you commonly would turn up if you yourself were interested in genealogical research, nothing groundbreaking, but to make that a little more substantive, I had to mine things like local newspapers that were open source or digital open source. So you could use just a quick key search to hopefully land on a name or a variant of a name that might be attributed to that patient. So everything from the Harvard Current to the New Haven Journal and Courier, these late 19th century and early 20th century newspapers to round out individual patient stories.
1: And I understand you were inspired to do this project by a project that had already been um, completed. And that's the work done at the ancient burying ground. Can you tell us in Hartford, can you tell us a little bit about how that project inspired you?
2: Yes, I can. So again, shortly after the pandemic had started, I've enrolled as a part of my public history course in a class called Digital History, actually given by the now head of Connecticut Explorer, Kathy Hermes. Uh, she was teaching the course and tapping into her own personal experiences with a project she called Uncovering Their History, where she had researched alongside a team of grad students, people of color who were buried in the ancient burying ground in Hartford, just behind today's Center Church. So inspired by her example of going off of these very, very sparse sources, she had to be very, very creative in the way she kind of mined this hidden history. She was able to attribute a new sense of humanity to these stories of people of color of colonial America that otherwise had gone unnoticed in that cemetery, especially since she was working with a group of people that didn't have headstones. So similar to the Connecticut Valley Hospital Cemetery where patients originally only had numbered headstones and their names were not released to the public all the way until 1999.
1: Okay, so can you talk a little bit about that? Because my understanding is that it is not easy as a researcher to get your hands on information about people and records related to people who were treated in Connecticut state facilities for mental health conditions. So can you talk a little bit about how that affected your research? And, you know, why were the headstones not given names was there a is was that simply a cost saving measure or tell me about that
2: so in a recently released addition to the uh, national register of historic places nomination for the physical hospital itself they state numerous times in their description of the cemetery its formation the reason of those numbered headstones was not necessarily maybe based on our our present notions of stigmification of mentally ill individuals, but rather it was, like you said, a cost-saving measure originally, or this kind of easy uniformity of the cemetery that had been used in other similar cemeteries or similarly uniform cemeteries after the Civil War, like huge military cemeteries. So our presentism says, oh, that's something about stigma stigmification of mentally ill. When on that listing, it says, hey, if we're talking about stigma, we should more so look at the idea of in the late 19th century and early 20th century, there was a stigma around being buried in a, quote, pauper cemetery or buried at the cost of the state.
1: You were able to piece together genealogical information about so many of the people buried in that cemetery. Did the hospital have records of their treatment and what happened to them while they were at the institution? Were you able to access those?
2: My answer for that is going to be a very challenging yes and no. And this is where uh, Matt Warshower, Dr. Matt Warshower, is going to come into our story. Uh, he actually, beginning in fall of 2008, ran into this idea of, well, how do we access patient records or this idea of how of the treatment of those who were sent to the Connecticut State Hospital of the insane from kind of this, this bottom-up patient perspective and not relying on kind of this, this hospital narrative of the yearly reports that they'd send out. And he had a student, Michael Sturgis, who was very, very interested in researching soldiers' heart, which they we call, you know, PTSD, and really wanted to focus in on Civil War soldiers. So quickly they figured out in their research that they needed to go to the today Connecticut Valley Hospital. But when they did so, they came up against a number of roadblocks having to do with the Freedom of Information Act, having to do with again that accessibility of records of people who are mentally ill in our state's history, past and present idea of how they're stigmatized today. So as of right now, as of October to, uh, 2011, those records are completely sealed at the Connecticut State Library, and those are the patient records of the Connecticut Valley Hospital. But that also applies if there are any patient records for the Fairfield Hills Hospital or the Norwich State Hospital for the insane, the other two major kind of state-run facilities. So kind of accessing more of a the the centralized record of how patients' experiences went at the Connecticut Valley Hospital is is not necessarily an option for us. Is not necessarily something that we can easily turn to.
1: I did want to ask you. You know, one of the horrible things about being a historian or studying history, we never get all of the sources we want. We never get all of the information we want. There's always part of you, no matter what topic you've studied, what people you've you've studied, you're all. There's always that little thing you wish you knew, right? But despite that, historians managed to put together stories. So I was wondering if you could tell us um, in your research, what have you been able to learn about the experience, you know, from your project, about the experience of people living with mental health conditions, mental health um, issues in the wake of the Civil War? Which stories have really grabbed you?
2: I would say what's... What's sad and what I, I almost kind of hesitate to share is the stories that I have that are most complete are of people who were, who were labeled criminally insane that were buried in that cemetery because within 10 years of the operation of the Connecticut State Hospital for the Insane, again, they start in 1868. 10 years in, they had already partnered with the Weathersfield State Prison, Pope Castle on the Cove, right behind, or right where the DMV is today. And with that partnership, they transferred over, again, a great deal of people who are labeled criminally insane. And a lot of those individuals... Uh, we know that their bodies were left unclaimed. claim. Maybe their families, again, distanced them because of their actions, of the notoriety of their actions. But again, it's that notoriety that makes the papers, that makes those primary sources that have more to them than maybe just a census record that you have to read between the lines. So even the first patient that's buried in the cemetery, Curtis Dart, put number one on his uh, headstone, he was someone who had been transferred from the Weathersfield prison to the hospital, had tried to appeal his ruling a number of times. He has a number of newspaper articles across the Hartford Current and the Litchfield Inquirer on, on his actions, and they are fairly gory, but it's not indicative of the widespread of who's actually buried in that cemetery. So in his case, he was working for a, for an elderly woman, uh, living in their home, kind of on and off as a, as a pseudo border She had two grandsons. Uh, apparently, he had beaten her to death while her grandsons were out. Again, it's something that's really, really, really gory. Or similar to Curtis Dart, you have John Anderson, burial number 39. So again, within the first 100 burials of the cemetery, within really the first few years of working up to the early 1880s at best, um, he has multiple articles saying that people were, were pleased with his passing, where he was this known murderer in the area. But again, is not indicative of the entirety of those stories. So you're getting cases that really, really skew the narrative of who's buried there. So there are other optimistic stories of digging through ancestry, seeing if you've ever messed around with ancestry, you know, there's public family trees or similarly find a grave, a site that's owned by ancestry has those pseudo public family trees. You can see stories of descendants who are not necessarily known in news articles, but have done their own research, have re kind of captured the history of, of their ancestors who were mentally ill who stayed at this hospital, you can see just people still care about this history and care about this past. So combing through those already built family trees on ancestry, combing through these, these scant, already built family trees on find a grave where you see that family interest. I stumbled on one patient, patient 347, Calvin Hall, whose family had posted a photo of him before he was actually sent to the asylum, before again he was he was distanced from his family, how he came there, we don't know. But seeing his face again is this level of humanity behind these stories or behind kind of the the scant fragments of stories. But the last kind of special case that I found or last kind of special case, um, there was a note, and again, that National Register for Historic Places Expansion 2018 that included the cemetery in that designation the hospital has of being this Historic place or being recognized as historic place. And within that record, it mentions upwards of 90% of the patients uh, were being at least in the late 19th century or early 20th century, all the way up until 1910, uh, committed through the hospital through a through a probate process or or sent there as a part of a, a, a district or a court ruling from their individual town. But it's it's very hard to actually locate those records or, or find again that probate record that corresponds with that data or corresponds with that story. So mixed in occasionally, I'll be able to find like patient four hundred and twenty-eight, uh, Lucy Van Vellen. I found her complete probate record where she was again committed to the hospital. So not like her her end of life kind of estate listing, but a physical packet that says, hey, this is the, quote, complaint for commitment to the asylum and proceedings therein. You could see that unlike a few of the other, again, scant probate records or, or committal papers I've found, she has a reference to family that's taking part of this process. And it's not just a process of, of the town committing her to the asylum or seeking out for additional help. Even though there's no mention of her family at the end of her life, which explains, again, how she ended up at the cemetery, it's those documents that paint a fuller story of that process of, well, how did people end up at this physical asylum? There are other stories throughout that, again, show things like patients who have received decades of care from their families and end up at the hospital after they have passed away. And again, explain how they got there, how their bodies were left unclaimed, how they were given this this anonymous headstone and left there in anonymity for upwards of a century. And other patients who you can see were sadly I don't know necessarily if abandoned by their family is the is the correct phrase. It's harsh again. We don't know the true the true details of their story beyond these scant newspaper references. There was one 13-year-old boy, uh, George Hodges. He was one of the earlier burials to the cemetery in the in the 30s, the the late 1870s, but again, one of the burials that's in the, the early teens of the cemetery. He was listed on the uh, his census, 1880 census, as having softening brain. He was only 13 years old, but in the, the newspaper at Hartford Current, and again, uh, the Litchfield Inquirer was listed as, sadly, kind of lashing back out at his family, had been sent to the asylum, passed away a few days later. It shows these different elements of family connections.
1: We'll be right back after these messages. We have sweet news from our friends at Connecticut's Old State House. The Old State House congratulates Sweets by Jenna as the winner of the 2022 election day cake bake-off held at the Old State House on November 5th. You can learn more about Sweets by Jenna Bakery by calling them at 860-785-8512 or at sweetsbyjenna.com. And to see photos of the beautifully decorated cakes that competed, go to their Facebook page at Connecticut's Old State House. You can help save bicycle history The 1890s saw an unprecedented surge in the popularity of bicycles, and Connecticut was a leader in bicycle production. Connecticut Historical Society's newest exhibition explores bicycle history in an interactive and playful experience designed for visitors of all ages. Visitors will find the history of the bicycle has been transformed by an angry villain into a series of games and puzzles that must be solved from trivia to bicycle racing to shuffleboard, you will need to rely on a host of skills and make your way through the game to preserve this important moment in Connecticut history. Visit the Bicycle Game and take history for a ride. Learn more at chs.org. And now back to creating the nutmeg. So, you have people in this cemetery who were committed to It seems like there's a real variety, right? So you have people who were committed By their towns, people who were committed by their families. You have a variety of age groups. Did the hospital take in just people of all ages and descriptions? Was it for ostensibly all residents of
2: Connecticut? So within, again, that National Register of Historic Places designation, they try to start painting a picture of that demographic data that you asked for, of, of age, socioeconomic background, so on and so forth. And yes, as you said, it is it is a range of people. So it was young. The youngest I've found is around 13 in the case of George Hodges. And all the way up to, I had two or three patients I found that were listed as, on the register as being 100 years old. But these patients, ideally for the hospital, it was designed, again, to to house those who are considered, quote, paupers or considered, uh, th- there's this few terms that they're around, but long story short, people who were not, who didn't have the money to necessarily support themselves or to support their mental health care or their families didn't have that aid. So they had nowhere else to go. And before the creation of this hospital had really relied on, on community means of care. So whether you're talking about, quote, poor houses or, or other charitable organizations, or eventually, things like just before the creation of the Connecticut State Hospital, the the Hartford Retreat, which tried to act as kind of the pseudo public organization, but eventually again, it was really people who were who were down on their luck, who had nowhere else to turn, and you can see that reflected in the cemetery in itself of that am- anonymity of the graves, of how they're lined up, of how they're they're identical throughout. So yes, it is it is a range of people that cuts across. Even though it's it's pretty standard and similar in economic status, it cuts across race, it cuts across religion, it cuts across nationality. You can see a great deal of immigrants to the cemetery, especially when you push to the very late 19th century, even though without the 1890 census, it's killing me. There's more information you can get there and up through the early 20th century.
1: Having almost a century of these burials, did you see any other differences between the people who were um, landing at? the hospital in like the, the late 1800s versus people in the 1940s and fifties.
2: Um, as of right now, as far as my, my survey of the cemetery, I've tried to progress chronologically starting with the first patient to working up to the last holding off into the release of the 1950 census, which I know came out recently, but I'm still working around to that data. Uh, you still see this, this strong presence of, again, the, the, same same kind of people. You see this this hint of immigration or th- this this hint uh, of single women is a huge category of individuals left there. Um, when it comes to uh, people of color, it's still sporadic throughout the entirety of the hospitals running and what we see reflected in the cemetery. When we get closer to the the early nineteenth century, moving away from the early nineteenth century, what I would say is the biggest change is the the availability of records. The way those records are stored. So the only two censuses that definitively cite Connecticut State Hospital for the Insane on them are the 1900 census and the 1930 census. But between that, you can you can still figure out when someone's listed as a quote like inmate or, or worker or there's certain terms on the census that let you know that it was it was taken at the hospital events the 1910 or 1920 or 1940 census. As you get closer to 1950, you get less definitive data on those censuses of someone who's physically at the hospital, though, so it's very, very interesting to see that even though you have necessarily better kept records or there's there's more people who are who are present on those censuses than earlier on when you're looking at the late 19th century data, it doesn't necessarily have kind of this exhaustive uh, list of. Some censuses list out what jobs someone has done in the hospital and find that that's very rare and that's always a treat, but that you're not gonna see that in the 1940 census. You're not gonna see that in a lot of the 1930 censuses. Same thing for the few 1950 censuses I've seen. That information drops off. Or even the idea of um, occasionally they'll list off like marital data. Sometimes that'll drop off with your 1940 and 1950 census in the in the wake of World War One, And I'm, I'm getting excited for World War II as far as looking at that 1950 census is concerned, you can see the presence of, of draft data or even like the 1917 um, uh, special kind of um, the exact term of the census, I'm going to butcher, but it's a soldier census. It's looking at, at service of service you've already given to the nation. Those bits of data help out at least with with male patients that have been buried in the cemetery and more of their stories uncovered. So I'd say that's the biggest change to so get closer to the present. You're better able to map out the the duration of their time at the hospital and occasionally get a sense of of maybe what they were doing at the hospital.
1: The people who ended up in that cemetery, did families ever come to claim them or to have the bodies moved to like a family plot
2: for example? Yes. Very early on in my project what cued me into this question was the idea that I had discovered that private George Wood He ended up uh, buried at uh, Indian Hill Cemetery in Middletown, right down the road from the hospital, or relatively so. I'm making it close, so that really is. But Indian Hill Cemetery is seen as one of our premier Gilded Age cemeteries in Connecticut, right up there with Hartford Cedar Hill. And now the um, Civil War plot on the premise, so the plot within Indian Hill Cemetery that Private Georgie Wood was moved to is called the Mansfield-GAR plot. So um, Grand Army of the Republic, G.I.R. But by 1905, there were a number of patients, um, Civil War soldiers rather, who had been buried at the hospital in its own right and moved in 1905 to the Mansfield G.I.R. plot that actually prompted me to look into, and I'm I'm still developing this portion of my research, uh, but looking into, are there any other soldiers there who weren't necessarily originally buried at the Connecticut Valley Hospital, but were um, cemetery, but attended the Connecticut State Hospital for the insane, which today is the Connecticut Valley Hospital. And so far I can tentatively say, I've found almost two dozen names of soldiers that appear on censuses have appeared as being soldiers that actually went through the hospital. So there's even a question of, well, what to what degree is that Mansfield plot? was this a plot that was designated for soldiers, that's what I'm trying to say, that went through the Connecticut Valley Hospital. Um, But they're not the only ones who are moved out of here, even though that's the the most most formal push. Uh, There were upwards of, again, almost two dozen uh, um, individuals, 27 actually to be exact, I'm looking at my notes, but 27 families from 1878 up until 1957 came to the cemetery and did move their relatives to others um, other areas across the state and it ranged from anywhere to several months after they had passed away to over a decade after their passing there's no mention of well how were they removed out of there there's brief notes on where they went but i'll say things along the lines of moved to hartford or moved to plainfield or again it's that mystery of well what was the process of of claiming families after they had passed away, we know from the 2018 National Register of Historic Places nomination for the cemetery, a lot of them were cremated. A lot of them uh, went through the um, property's crematorium. There was a formal process of that happening, or at least the register says that there there had to be verbal confirmation from the family or a period of time where the family did not step in and there was no other voice to say whether or not they've been cremated but that again complicates the process of what happens when individuals are moved and how exactly did the hospital go about that? Especially if these names weren't made public information until 1999, how was a family reclaiming uh, the, the body of their family member a decade later? And then feeling comfortable they physically have moved that family member if, if they've been cremated. And once someone was physically moved out of cemetery, the very next burial in that cemetery used the same plot and the same headstone. So you could have a patient who's buried between uh, patients 30 and 32, put in plot 31, but was buried there maybe 50 or 60 years after patients 30 and 32. Just to make your job harder. And they're around the lines of minimally five or six headstones within that cemetery well, headstones and and, um, stones that are laying flat on the ground, not like the um, 1,681 original stones in there. Uh, But they were placed by families next to the numbered stone that gives their their name, their date of birth, and even things like married to, uh, very specific information. I've, uh, the one that really touched me the most, I would say, or or originally captured my attention when I was first looking into the cemetery and I first started walking around because it's it's almost a, a it's a cemetery that's almost three acres. It's imposing when you're walking around. And As you get lost in the sea of uniform graves, uh, early on in the very, very beginning of the cemetery, within the kind of the, the first 200 graves, you see this brownstone grave of Mary Elizabeth Lindbergh Johnson, whole name on it. This is a grave marker, uh, 459. It has direct descendants and, and had a family who wanted to plop down that, that grave. It's in the same it's in the style of the period of when she was buried. So again, late like 19th, early 20th centuries. Uh, but how her family was able to find her and why they installed the cemetery is a mystery. But it does list off that, hey, she has she has a loving husband, and this is the the individual who provided that grave. It does have a little. A short kind of suggestion of that story, but when you look up her husband, that's really where the the data begins to to stop off. Or even it's it's very very difficult. I've tried to look of where he's buried to see maybe if we can get into that story of why she was left here. But again, you hit a you hit the end of the road. But it shows that when it comes to stigmification of the mentally only early like twentieth century, her husband did not. That that was definitively considered a pauper cemetery in the early 1900s. Um, it was definitively a place that, again, the, the National Historic Places um, nomination says people, you know, blew through their savings. People went into debt to have family members buried elsewhere. Out of the get-go, it, it, you didn't want to be attributed to it. But no, you have that stone proudly there. And she's not the only woman who's has had that suggestion of family in the cemetery. If you go all the way up to grave uh, 1213, and I hope I uh, do her name justice, uh, Graza uh, Bussieri uh, Clemente, beautiful, beautiful name. She passes away in 1935. She's got a stone that's flushed to the ground, uh, almost kind of a, a charcoaly silver in nature. It's, it's something kind of indicative of period. To me, it looks a little closer to the 1950s. If I had to just take a guess off of the style of stone itself, this is where you have to travel down to the cemetery and see. But on her on her stone, full birth and death data, full name, again, including that either a middle name or including maybe that was her, um, her um, surname before she got married. She's listed as beloved mother there's the family connection that's listed there. And when you look into her story, you can see it easily can tap into data that she immigrated from Italy. Um, She she had a husband and she had children. But again, it shows that there is a family that was interested in the fact that she was buried there that loved her, that wanted to have that connection. So to just paint this cemetery with a broad brush and say, Oh, these are people designated as criminally insane, or maybe didn't have any family at all, or were so overcome by stigma in the eyes of their family that they didn't want anything to do with them. That's not the full story. And based on the fact that you know, from 1999 to today, we've had families come out of the woodwork and report, "Oh my God, I've discovered my family member." There's there's several stories of that. We know again, there's there's still that interest.
1: You mentioned a rise in the number of unmarried women. I think it was in the early 20th century. Can you talk about that a little bit and why you think that might have been?
2: It's it's interesting to see that at least from 1900 to 1920, I did notice again that that presence of there are more women on the census than men. But as far as a as a rationale behind that, I mean, you are getting closer to the rise of the eugenics movement. You are getting closer to those those stereotypical facets of of mental health care where you have the the demonization of whether it be like menopause or menstruation, or, but you also see that at the late 19th century, you see the origins of those, you see gross mis- misunderstandings as far as uh, women's health or gross misunderstandings of, of women's place in society. And that is seen as some breach of etiquette that might end somebody up in the Connecticut State Hospital for the insane. That being said, again, when you when you have these these unmarried women or these recently married women even, their stories again are so hard to probe, especially if they have very, very similar names or very, very kind of common names. Like there's uh one one woman, it's it's Mary, but I can't remember her last name. There are three Marys with the same exact name, though, on the the actual register of who's buried in this cemetery. So when you're dealing with that kind of anonymity, it's it's annoying. But again, that's that's an area of research that hopefully this this database that I'm building or kind of the the beginnings of a database might be something of interest for some for someone else might be that probing question that you can you can take from this huge survey of data and i think that's really kind of the beauty of it so that
1: actually leads me to another question i want to ask you is as you so can you tell us sort of where you are in the status of this project and what you hope people can do with this information like what are some other questions you think we might be able to answer or at least situations we might be able to shed light on using this data.
2: Thank you for asking that. Um, Again, much like Kathy Hermes uncovering their history, I was so fortunate um, throughout last school year to actually use that database in my own life as kind of this touchstone of of research. I partnered with uh, the Witness Stones Project, Uh, but I was able to kind of piggyback off of her research, learn about the lives of two people who've been enslaved in Hartford, went without headstones for for years and years and years and years, and again, pull from that basis of data. And I hope the same is true with with my database, even though we're dealing with a great number of um, historical silences those gaps in data that that anger you, that frustrate you, that keep you up at night when you're going through name by name all the way up to patient 1,681. There might be something that somebody else has more of a capacity to research than I don't, some access to things like um, death certificates. I don't necessarily understand the full depth and, and scope of how to gain access to those without being hit with a paywall or hit with a, a demand for being a direct uh, descendant. So either a, a professional historian or someone who's, who's more geared to being a professional historian And again, might have a different lens based on their own research of how to look at this data, whether it be looking at, like you said, specifically through a lens of women or specifically looking through a lens of race or looking through a lens of maybe people who were designated as criminally insane for the late 19th century and early 20th century. At the same time, I want this to to be almost a an open source in the same way you have ancestry family trees or, or find a grave. So if, if I'm lucky enough to put something out there that sparks that interest for a family, that would be really, really wonderful. Because one of the first stories behind the idea of releasing the names of all of these patients in 1989, of creating this kind of formal triptych on site that has all these names, and a 15-year memorial proceeding after that was the fact that one family, the family of patient, uh, James um, James Byrie, discovered the idea that, hey, our, our great-grandfather is buried here, a grandfather, we didn't know that as a family, he was missing for, for decades, his own son didn't know where he ended up. There, there was a mystery that they were able to solve through this cemetery, through connecting to that name that I wouldn't be able to access in census records or newspaper records. They were able to say that he he worked as a carriage painter before he actually was a part of that hospital. They were able to again tap into those those family archives that they had or tap into that kind of that family lore, that family legend. So this hopefully is either a a, a sort of professional source or a source for again, people who aren't trained historians. It's not like you need to be so deep in this that it's it's impenetrable to access. it's it's hopefully that's not what I'm doing with this resource. Uh, but additionally, I'm just hoping that access to this information, moves us away from when you when you Google Connecticut um, Valley Hospital Cemetery, one of the first hits you get is things like Damn Connecticut and Atlas Obscura and uh, let's take a, a, a ghost tour through the cemetery. There's YouTube videos that go into that. And while on the cusp of Halloween that may be interesting, it may be cool to look into things uh, through the lens of an urban legend, it's that idea of with this lack of information on the cemetery, or with this idea that these people have been anonymous for upwards of almost 120 years at the, at the minimum, they've only been anonymous for 40 years if they're buried there in 1957. Filling that gap of information, or at least showing, hey, these are real people. They have real stories. They're they're human. It's, it's not something that needs to be so sensationalized, I should say. Hopefully, this takes the place of some of that narrative, even though, of course, you're always going to have that kind of fanfare surrounding a cemetery like this.
0: Look for Caitlin's finished product to go live online sometime in 2023. Check out our show notes for links to resources about the Connecticut Valley Hospital Cemetery, including a link to the National Register of Historic Places application for the cemetery, which contains a detailed history of the site and its residents. Join Connecticut Explored's 20th anniversary celebration by subscribing at ctexplore.org. New subscribers can get six issues for the price of four with our holiday sale. This episode of Grading the Nutmeg was produced by Natalie Belanger and engineered by Patrick O'Sullivan of High Wattage Media. And this is Mary Donahue for Grading the Nutmeg. Be sure to join us for our next episode.